Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 and find verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. And a message that I've entitled today, Like a Boss. Matthew 20, 20 through 28, and a message that I've entitled, Like a Boss. Now, I remember last year, uh, before the, the pandemic really broke, uh, my, my daughter had been going uh, to Owasso Preparatory Academy. Great, great school, uh, great Christian school, uh, just filled with godly individuals, and, and they were having a talent show. And my daughter, for, for her talent, she had, she had gotten a little Razor scooter for, for Christmas. Now, she didn't really know how to ride the Razor scooter. She knew how to get on and she knew how to kick. She didn't really know how to take both feet off of the ground and, and to, to ride on it. And, and she, to the song by Mandisa, Overcomer, which is about four minutes long, kicked herself in a circle around a stage for four minutes in a fancy Nancy dress, in a Hello Kitty helmet, and when she got to the end of her four-minute performance, she jumped off, one foot off, her little Razor scooter, and she just stood there like she knew she had just killed it. The crowd had been gone. I mean, they were just eating it up. I mean, she literally just rode in a circle for four minutes, <laughs> hopped off of that thing, and just said, Man, you are blessed to be here tonight, are you not? <laughs> like a boss. Now... Here's the thing, though. Here's the reality, is that the idea of prominence in God's kingdom, the idea to live your faith out like a boss is completely different than what the world would think. To live a life of prominence, to live a life of excellence in God's kingdom is actually the antithesis of what the world would teach you. And we find that in our text today. Now, here's the deal. At Community Baptist, we love to preach through books of the Bible. I believe that the greatest way for us to grow in our relationship with the Lord through the understanding of his word is to look at books of the Bible as were arranged by the Holy Spirit in the context of the entire Bible and to walk through exegetically verse by verse. Now, sometimes we do topical. Sometimes we look systematically at various aspects of theology. But the truth of the matter is we love to preach through books of the Bible. The reason why that is important is sometimes like today, we are jumping right in the middle of a story and you can lose the context of everything that has been transpiring within that book by looking at just one passage of Scripture. And so before we look at this in depth, we really need to lay the groundwork of where we are in the story of God and where we are particularly in Matthew's gospel. And so the book of Matthew is built around two sets of markers. Two sets of markers are laid out in the book of Matthew that really help us to understand how Matthew is presenting his gospel. The first is found Twice in the Gospel of Matthew with the phrase this, from that time forward, Jesus began to. And we find this formula in Matthew 4.17 and in Matthew 16.21. And this formula is used to define what has gone before from what follows in Matthew's storyline. And so Matthew 4.17 says this, 
From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So from Matthew 4.17 to Matthew 16.20, it's all about Jesus' Galilean ministry. It's all about him doing works within Galilee and Judea and and just right there in, in, in that area. And he's doing his ministry there. In Matthew 16, 21, we see that the next marker is laid out for us. And it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so from that point on, everything is focused in on Jesus going to the cross. Everything is focused in on Jesus going and dying for our sins. And so those are two markers that are laid out. Uh, The second marker that, that we see is what is referred to uh, as the discourses of Matthew or the sermons of Matthew. Scholars have identified five major discourses within the book of Matthew. Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 and 7, Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 18, and Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Now, each of these discourses end with the phrase, and it happened when Jesus finished And then it lays out various teachings or instructions. It it, it switches out words, but it always ends with, and it happened when Jesus had finished. Now, Matthew uses this as a transition out of the sermon into a narrative about the life and ministry of Jesus as he lives out what he just taught. In other words, the the first discourse we find in Matthew 5, 7 is probably the most well-known. It's the Sermon on the Mount. For, for three chapters, we see Jesus preach this sermon. And at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. It's this is what the kingdom of God is. Let me lay out for you what the kingdom is because everybody has this idea of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And from the outset of his ministry, he's trying to teach individuals that the idea that they had about the kingdom was about to be flipped upside down. The second discourse is found in Matthew 10, and it's known as the mission discourse. This is where he sends out the 12, and he sends out the disciples, not to the entire world, but just to Israel at this point in time. And what he's doing is he's laying the groundwork for the disciples' mission. The third discourse is found in Matthew 13. This is known as the parabolic discourse. And this is all about the kingdom already not yet. So he teaches the kingdom is like over and over and over, and he uses these parables to teach the kingdom. Then the fourth discourse is where we will find our text today. It lies within the fourth discourse and in the fifth discourse. The fifth discourse is found in Matthew 24, 25, and it's probably the second best known discourse. It's the Olivet Discourse. It's a teaching on eschatology, and it's a teaching on when the kingdom and how the kingdom will appear in its full arrival. So what is the fourth discourse? Because the fourth discourse plays a large part in what it is that we will be looking at today and in the context of what we need to understand our text to fall within. The fourth discourse in Matthew is Matthew chapter 18. And it is known as the community discourse or the discourse on the church. And it highlights the teaching of the community embodying the kingdom. In other words, it talks about how we deal with one another. It talks about the function and the role of the church. 
Now, now remember the context of where we're going to find Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 is after the second marker that has been laid down uh, that Jesus is now going to Jerusalem. So Jesus, where we find our text today, Jesus is already telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. They don't quite understand it. They don't quite get it. In fact, Peter rebukes Jesus because he says this. So we find ourselves in the context that Jesus has already set his face on Jerusalem. All of history is making its way. All of the momentum is making its way towards the cross of Calvary. But we also find it in the context of the fourth discourse that says, this is how you are to live your faith out amongst each other. This is what the church ought to be doing. This is how the church ought to be living. These are two important factors for us to understand our text today. And in fact, if we don't understand where it is positioned in the book of Matthew, you'll fail to understand the importance of this text. Because I would say this is one of the most important passages in the book of Matthew. Because it's leading up to laying out what is about to happen. In fact, if you look in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, you will see that in its local context of what it's surrounded by. Chapter 20 of Matthew starts off with the parable or the, the, the teaching of the laborers in the vineyard. Where some individuals get hired early in the day. And some individuals get hired later in the day, and then later in the day, and later in the day, and later in the day. And then they come back and they show up. Uh, and, and the individual pays them for their work, and they all get the same wage. And the individuals that started earlier in the day said, hey, this ain't fair. This ain't right. Hold on a second. You paid them the same amount you paid us, but we've been working way more than they've been working. We've been working a lot longer than, than they've been working. And the, 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 the owner of the vineyard says, it's mine to do with what I want. I give out what I want. Now, we're going to see in the context of what it is that we're talking about that in the church, oftentimes there are individuals that say, well, I've been serving the Lord for a, lot, for a long time. All these new people, they need to just get in here. They just need to serve. Okay, yes, you need to serve just like they need to serve. There's no term limit. There's no time limit on serving Jesus. He's trying to teach them ultimately that God is gracious, and what he gives to us, none of us deserve. Everything he gives us is surely by his grace. But look at this. In verses 17 through 19, what happens? Jesus tells them, I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to die. It says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, what immediately follows in chapter 21 is a triumphal entry. So this is the context that we find our text in. Jesus is already teaching this idea that everything that is given to you is by God's grace and that he's going to go to the cross and die for them. And it's right in the middle of Jesus about to enter into Jerusalem to do just that. Now, let's read our text together. Verse 20 says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? 
She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them and to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if we can go back just a little bit, the start of the fourth discourse, remember it's the, the discourse on the community, it's the discourse on the church. We, we find in, in that, we find in Matthew 18.1, we find this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're constantly wrestling with this, this idea amongst themselves. Who's the greatest? Who, who, they're trying to put together this pecking order of, of, of how they can obtain status. You see, their idea of what Jesus was going to do as king is what he's going to set up an earthly kingdom. So now they're jockeying for position within his parliamentary. They're jockeying for position within his court. They're jockeying for position that, that, that hey, I, I, I want to be vice president. I, 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 want, I want to be over the military. I want to be over the economy. I want to be, I want all these different positions. And so now they're starting to try to jockey against each other. And they're trying to look at each other and say, well, I'm doing this. I've been here longer. I, hey, I was in the boat. When he first called me, I was one of his first disciples he called. I was on the Mount Transfiguration. Where were you? Where, where were you? Thaddeus. Where were you? And if we're not careful, we fall victim to the same thing. This passage is so important because it teaches us how we are to live our faith out within the context of a church body. Now, the first thing I want you to see is a mother's request. Verses 20 through 24. The sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. Uh, their mom, uh, most scholars say, is Salome. She comes up and, and, and listen, she's just being mama. She's just being mama. She wants what's best for her, her babies. Right? Now, Mark, Mark doesn't have the mother of James and John asking this question. James and John come and ask this question because ultimately I think what Mark is trying to articulate is that the request ultimately comes from James and John. I think the mama just did for them what they were scared to do in a way. Mama heard them talking, well, I, you know, I, I don't want Andrew or Peter to be, be sitting on the left or right. I mean, we, we deserve, and mama, mama took it upon herself and said, I'm, I'm about to go make this happen for you. I, I, can just, I can just see it. It probably wheels her in motion, and, and she starts to go, and now they, they see like, no, Mama, don't do it. No, I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk to him. Oh, Lord, Mama. All right, she's just being Mama. L listen, she, she wasn't being malicious. She's just misguided. 
James and John weren't being malicious in their request. They're just misguided. They don't, they don't understand. See, they're still thinking in worldly, earthly terms. And far too often within church, sometimes we can start thinking in worldly and earthly terms. What we can do is just create a, a business model. Or spiritual entrepreneurs are trying to execute a business plan. I said, lead a church where individuals just adopt this consumeristic mentality where church is nothing more than a place I go to and a seat I sit in, and it's going to be the same seat every week. I'm going to sit in that seat, and I'm going to come for for an hour. I'm going to come for an hour and a half. If Aaron Swinson's here preaching two hours, and then I'm going to go home, and I'm going to go about my life. And it's just consuming, consuming, because it's all about me. And ultimately, James and John, even though they love Jesus, they're, they're trying to figure out for themselves. They're trying to leverage themselves in a position to where that they can find for themselves something further down the road. Now, what we see is that when Jesus says that, that you don't know what you ask, he says that you don't know what you are asking. Now, again, he doesn't address mama. He addresses James and John because I think ultimately he knows that this request is coming from them. And so he addresses them. He says, you don't know what you ask. Now, it doesn't mean that he couldn't do that. It doesn't mean he didn't have the power to do that. It just means that it wasn't for him to do. You see, again, what we see that Jesus is trying to teach is that we don't earn any position within the kingdom. It's just given to us. It doesn't matter if you were the laborer that started early in the morning or the laborer that started late in the evening. Everything that is given to you is given to you not because you earned it, but because God so graciously saw fit to give it to you. See, the gospel is against earning. You don't earn God's favor. You don't earn God's love. You don't earn salvation. But yet, there is a tension to understand that although those things are true, we are expected, we are even commanded to flesh out our faith through obedient works that God has prepared for us. The grace of God is against earning, but it's not against effort. That's why we should work as unto the Lord, Colossians 3.23. That is why we should do everything without grumbling or complaining, Philippians 2.14. That's why we should do everything for the Lord and as not to man and to do it with excellence. But we see that James and John come forward and what they want to do is they want to leverage. They want to earn positions. They want to earn status. They want to leverage their following of Jesus for personal benefit and personal gain. Charles Spurgeon tells this story about this, this king who was loved dearly by those that were in his kingdom. And there was a gardener who grew this beautiful carrot. It was the most beautiful carrot that you'd ever seen in your life. It was the most perfect carrot. And if anybody in here gardens me and my wife, we have a raised garden bed, you know what it feels like when you, when you actually harvest something. You know what I'm saying? I tell you what, you'll, you'll spend all summer just to save $3, but, you know, it's worth it. Because when you come in and you come in and you have that, boy, it is just, I mean, there's some pride. I mean, you just feel good about it. And you, I don't care how good it actually tastes. You'll just say, that, boy, that don't taste better than the store. 
It, it probably doesn't, but because you, you gotta, you, you're invested at that point. So he brings in this great, the greatest carrot, right? And the king was so touched and so moved that he gave him a huge plot of land. Well, there was this nobleman. There was this nobleman who saw this, and he thought, well, goodness, if he gets this huge plot of land for just a carrot, um, I can't imagine how much I could get if I gave him one of my finest horses. And so he brings the king the, the, this fine horse, and the king just says thank you and doesn't follow up with anything else. And so later on, the nobleman sees the king, and the king sees him, and he says, why are you so down? Why do you look so sad? And he said, well, I don't quite understand it. I saw that the farmer gave you a carrot, and you gave him a plot of land, but I gave you my best horse, and you didn't give me anything. And the king responded, and he said this, the gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. You see, oftentimes, that's how we view things. In fact, that, that is what is being taught in a lot of churches today through the prosperity gospel. You see, you're not really giving your service. You're not really giving your life. You're not really giving your offering to God. You're giving it to yourself. Just as the gardener gave the carrot to the king, the nobleman, he really gave the horse to himself because he said, this is just an investment so I can get something back out of it. And many individuals are being taught that same thing. Listen, you do this for Jesus so that you can get something else back on the, the tail end of it. Well, that, that's, that's completely foreign to the New Testament. That's completely foreign to Scripture. This idea that you can jockey for position, that if I do this, then I'm going to get this out of it. So the motivation then becomes more of what I'm going to get more than what I can give to God Almighty. If I lay my life down and I don't get absolutely anything but eternal life, isn't that enough? If I, if I don't get the new car, if I don't get the big house, if I don't get the health restored, if I don't get the pl big plot of land, if my cucumbers don't come back in, praying about that. <laughs> I got eternal life in Christ, don't I? So am I serving to get more material blessings out of God or am I serving because God Almighty laid down his life for me and made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's a question that we need to ask ourselves. What is our motivation? You see, most people wish to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. Well, we want to serve God as long as it's just advising him of how our lives ought to look and what ought to be transpiring in our lives. But that's not what God calls us to. That's what our text actually calls us away from, that mentality. John 3, uh, or excuse me, in verses 25 through 27, we, we see the king's requirement. We see the mother's request, and then we see the requirement. It says, listen, you want to be great in this kingdom of mine, Jesus says, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You see that the, the, the paradox that we find within the kingdom of God and what it is that he says? He says, you want to be great? Okay, be nothing. You want to be first? 
Make yourself the lowest. Completely, radically different from what the world would teach. The world teaches climb on the back of anybody that you possibly can. Build yourself up at the expense of others. To truly gain powers, have everybody serving you. To orbiting their life around your life. And you know what Jesus says? You want to be great in my kingdom? Make yourself a servant of everybody else. Don the servant's towel around your waist and, and wash everybody else's feet. D don't, don't, don't live a life for yourself. Live a life for God and for others. Isn't that what the, the great commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He says you got to you got to make yourself a servant. you got to make yourself a slave. John 3.30 says this. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist has just been confronted by his, his followers, and he's saying, hey, man, we're, we're, we're losing viewers. They're not tuning into our podcast as much anymore. They're, they're not watching our live stream as much anymore. They're, they're over there watching uh, uh, Jesus' live stream a little bit more than us. They're, they're following him. And John says, you know what? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom, he rejoices at the voice of the bridegroom. And this is a good thing. Because for him to increase, I've got to decrease. Now, oftentimes in our Christian faith, we want to be the bridegroom. We want to be the center of attention. You, you ever been to, to a wedding where somebody in the bridal party was trying to do too much? They were being way too extra, just, just extra. And it's, it's pulling attention away from the actual individuals that you should be focused in on. See, our, our role is not, not to be all up in Jesus' picture. Our, our, our role isn't, isn't to be all up. Our role is to point people to Jesus. Our role is to be out of the frame. Our role is to make sure that Jesus is seen. So therefore, we must decrease so that he can increase. Mark 8.35 says this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, what we try to do is we, we, try to, we try to package our life up. We try to cellophane our life. We try, to, we try to save it. We try to preserve it. We try to hold on to it as much as we possibly can. And he says, when you do that, you actually lose it. But when you lay down your life, when you stop trying to make much of yourself, when you stop trying to live for yourself and you start living for the kingdom of God, when you make yourself into a servant of God Almighty, where you put the needs of others before your own needs, when you make sure that God is at the center and prioritizing everything you do in your life, then you actually have true life. And you save it. Why? Because you've given everything over to Jesus. Jesus is your king. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one that is directing your life. Paul frequently referred to himself as a servant or a slave of Christ. We see that. Um, we see James referred to himself as a slave of Christ. We see uh, uh, all these disciples that understand themselves as a servant of Christ. 
in, in other words, the consumer mentality that is prevalent through churches today and throughout the lives of believers is in direct conflict with the teaching of the New Testament. The, the, the idea that, that I just come and, and I take advantage of the various ministries within the church, but I never, I never help serve in any of those ministries. I never give back to help the support of the work of the church is a completely foreign concept to the New Testament. The consumer mentality is completely foreign to the New Testament. It doesn't exist. Everything we see in the New Testament is individuals that are laying their lives down for the gospel, that have committed their life to serving within the local body of the church, that have committed their life to fulfilling the great commission and the great commandment. Now, we see in verse 28, we see a disciple's reflection. It says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, we are to reflect Christ both in attitude and in action. That we are to reflect Christ both in attitude and action. Look at uh, Philippians uh, 2.6. Philippians 2.6 says this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, we are forgiven. We are redeemed. I, I don't have to earn my salvation. I don't have to earn God's love. That's been given to me. Do faith in Christ Jesus. I don't have to, I don't have to try to, to earn a place in God's family. But neither do I use that position that I have as something to be exploited to say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't have to serve in the church. I, I don't have to follow the commandments of God. I, I, I'm a child of God. I can live my life however I want to. And we try to exploit that as a loophole to live our lives however we want. Christ, who's the very son of God, did not use that as something to be exploited while he was here on this earth. He said that I came to serve, not to be served. Verses 7 and 8 go on to say this. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what God is calling each and every one of us to do is to die to self. That your calendar that you have created, listen, most individuals base God around their calendar instead of basing their calendar around God. It's my time. Same thing with our bank accounts. It's my money. And what God is saying is that what you're actually doing is missing out on the Christian faith. What you're actually doing is missing out on what it is that I desire for you. Don't live that life where you miss out on what it is that God wants to do in and through your life. You will look most like Jesus when you're serving. Because that is what he came. That's what he said. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. You look most like Jesus when you are serving God. Philippians uh, 2, 7, and 8, it, it ends, he humbled himself. We need to live lives of humility. Back in verses 17 and 19 of Matthew 20, we see that the very Son of Man would be crucified. He willingly laid down his life. 
that he came in humility, as Philippians 2 shows us, to fulfill his mission. Christ was being obedient to the Father and making way for, for others, that he was being obedient to the Father and laying his life down for others. And ultimately, when we talk about serving, we're talking about those two realities. Serving is our obedience to God and our laying our lives down for others. Serving is the greatest expression of loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Serving is the fulfillment of the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself truly is embodied by individual serving. Why? Because we're being obedient to, to God Almighty when, when we do that. Uh, John 14, 15 tell, tells us that. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's a way to flesh that out? Obey his commandments. Okay, well, it, it goes on and it, it shows us in, in uh, 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 Galatians 5.13, it, sh it shows us this reality that for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So here's a commandment of God Almighty, and it's to serve one another. Now, we're to serve each other. It goes on to say in verses 14 through 15, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see how he equates fulfilling love your neighbor as yourself with serving one another? But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, I hate to say that oftentimes what is pictured more in churches today is Galatians 5, 15 than what we see in Galatians 5, 13. That in churches, we're too busy devouring one another. We're too busy talking and gossiping about one another. We're too busy leaving it up for somebody else to do something else in the church than for us to come alongside and to help out than we are to really embody the reality that we are serving one another. Now, what does it look like to serve one another? Well, we see all throughout the New Testament. It's to pray for one another, James 5.16. To truly pray for one another. Not, not when individuals you hear in need and say, I'll pray for you. And not truly hit your knees and pray for that. But to pray for one another. We need to be praying for each other. That's how we can serve each other. I can take your needs and your cares and your concerns before our, our, our Heavenly Father. Live in harmony with one another. Romans 12, 16. Singing with one another, Ephesians 5.19. Did you know that? Go back and read Ephesians 5.19. Now, now God, knew, God knew that we would struggle with, with singing. And so what does he say? Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He said, I know some of y'all, you're going to want only psalms. I know some of y'all, y'all ain't going to want hymns. Some of you, you're going to like the new modern version of the spiritual songs. But guess what? You need to do all three of those. You need to sing all those. And you know what? You help serve each other when you come alongside and you are singing out loud together the praises of God Almighty. That's a whole nother sermon. We'll get to it. <laughs> Submitting to one another, Ephesians 5.21. Building each other up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Love one another, John 13.34. Now, the goal of this church, the, the, the goal of Community Baptist is to equip the redeemed of God to live Christ-centered lives within Christ-centered homes. 
and to do so for the glory of God. And we believe that living with a missionary mindset of planting churches and multiplying local bodies of believers into their local context is the most strategic and the most biblical way to go about this. Understand, our goal is not to, to ever have a megachurch. Our, our, our goal is to build up leaders, send them out so that we can plant other churches. We, we want to plant other, because we see that's the model of the New Testament. That's why you have uh, books to the church at Colossae. That's why you have bu- a book to the, the church at Philippi. That's why you have a, a book to the church at Thessalonica, because they were going around and they were planting churches in local context because they wanted individuals that lived within that specific locality to be together because you can't live out these truths via a TV screen. You can't, you can't serve one another when Thou other individuals live in a whole different state than you. That's not what church was created to be. Church was created to be done in community where we lovingly served one another. How can I serve you if I don't even know you? So we want to plant churches. And I don't know, will will God allow us to plant one church? Will God allow us to plant Two churches? Will, will God allow us to, to have the opportunity to plant five or ten or more churches? I, I, I don't know, but I do know this. We will never truly be a multiplying church that plants healthy and vibrant churches if we don't all start serving each other here and now. If, if, if we don't reject the consumeristic mindset that I just come in, I just sit down, and I just leave, I'm telling you, the health and the vitality of this church will decline. And therefore, we will never be able to plant other healthy and vibrant churches in the other local context. The old saying goes that in most churches, 20% of the individuals do 80% of the work. That's about average. I would say that's about average. 20% of the individuals do 80% of the work. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be an average church. And I don't want you to have an average faith. And when you adopt that consumeristic mindset, when, when you don't truly plug in and when you don't truly serve the local body, you are missing out on God doing a work in your life. And it's not so much about about the church as it is about your relationship with Jesus Christ. He said, I didn't come to be served. I come to serve and to lay my life down for many. Well, who, who are the many? The many are the church. It's individuals that have placed their faith in Christ Jesus. And that we would do the same, that we would lay down our lives as well. I close with this. There's a Spanish philosopher by the name of Miguel Hanemino, and he writes this story about this Roman aqueduct in Spain. It was built in 109 AD, and for 1,800 years, it carried cool water from the mountains to the hot and thirsty city. Nearly 60 generations of men drank from its flow. 
Then came another generation, a recent one, who said, this aqueduct is so great a marvel that it ought to be preserved for our children as a museum piece. We shall relie uh, relieve it of its centuries-long labor. They did. They laid modern iron pipes. They gave the ancient bricks and mortar a reverent rest, and the aqueduct began to fall apart. The sun beating on the dry mortar caused it to crumble. The bricks and stones sagged and threatened to fall. What ages of service could not destroy, idleness disintegrated. If we want this church to continue to grow, continue to flourish, continue to be vibrant and healthy, it requires continual service of its people. If we adopt the mindset of consumerism to where we just create all of these various systems where certain individuals and only certain individuals carry out the work of the church while we just come in and sit and soak and leave, what we will actually be doing is eroding and destroying the work of this church. I pray, I know sometimes individuals hear messages like this and say, you know what, that, that's not me. It's what God wants for you. And I love you enough to say and speak into your lives to say that what God wants for you to do, if you're a guest here, this may not apply to you, but if you're a member of this church, if you call this your church home and you're not actively plugged in and serving, man, I'm lovingly calling you as a pastor to begin this very day to start that process. We need you. As we continue to grow, we need individuals to help meet the needs. Listen, it is projected by our city manager that within, over the next year, there will be close to 3,400 new homes built in Kuwaita. Now, think the average size of a household is 3.5 individuals. So we're talking about in a year's time, having, having close to 10,000 people move into our community. And I believe God has strategically placed us here to receive those individuals, to meet the needs of those individuals that come in. And we need to have each and every one of you using your gifts and your talents and your treasures so that we can expand the kingdom. We can meet the needs of those individuals that come in, that we can love on them, that we can provide a place to where the gospel goes forward and that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ.